Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 31 in our series for 2015. And today's date is Friday, the 4th of September. And Leon, this week, what have we got on the slate? Well, we're talking to a certified executive coach from America, Deborah McLaughlin, and she talks about helping business owners, executives and managers ignite what she calls their renegade leader. Yeah, I wonder if she'd come out and and help our government. I I hope she would. I hope she would. And then we're going to have a fantastic chat with economist uh, Stephen Koulis, all about the economic picture in Australia, which is not looking good. Yeah, not at all, no. Are we or are we not in recession? Because, you know, Brazil is also in recession, as Canada's is, as in is recession. As is Canada. And, and what's significant there, of course, Gary, is that both Canada and Brazil, like Australia, are reliant on the resources industry. Exactly. Yeah. Canada's into oil and minerals as well. Okay, so uh, let's listen to Deborah. We want to talk to you about your coaching. Uh, your, uh, you run the Renegade Leader Coaching and okay. Consulting Group. What exactly is a Renegade Leader, Deborah? <laughs> Yes, well, as you can only imagine, it's a leader who challenges the status quo. It's a leader who, you know, has that fire in their belly, wants to accomplish something, and is somehow able to rally their team to be able to do it, and something that not every every leader is able to do. Sometimes we have the fire in the belly, but we don't can't quite rally the team or have the courage to move forward. So what's required to be a renegade leader? What's required to be a renegade leader? That's an interesting question, because because if, if I look at the who I would peg as renegade leaders of my clients, they all look very different. So I would say the one commonality of, of a renegade leader is that they have a clear vision about where they want to go. I mean, that that I know for sure. And they often have visions that are so big, sometimes they haven't even shared the vastness of their vision and with their executive team or their organization because they, they get these ideas and they know that, you know, in order to convince, enroll and engage other people, that you have to take them on the same journey as to how they got their idea one second in the shower in the morning (laughs) that it might take a number of meetings to enroll their people in the vision. I mean, when I think about it, I mean, the kind of renegade leaders that come to mind are people who've actually made a difference, who are actually so different from the rest that they stand out from the pack. And I'm thinking of, say, people like a Steve Jobs, for example, or a Richard Branson. Do any come to mind for you? Yes, well, certainly those are very predominant names. And I think sometimes with with some personalities, people look at renegade leader as somebody that has to be aggressive or forceful or so really out on the as an outlier on the boundaries, where in truth, it can be the everyday person. To give you an example, one of the clients that I worked with a couple of years ago was a 28-year-old woman who worked in marketing in an organization, and her office was in their corporate office, and she happened to see that every month in the conference room, all of the C-suite executives went in, and they were making key decisions for the future of the company. And she she was targeted as a high potential leader that I got to work with. Now, most people would use that coaching time to, to look at different things that they were working on in their business or their teams or a particular initiative. She looked at me and she asked, how do I get myself into that room? I know I'm only 28 years old. I know I don't have as much experience, but I have ideas about this company that would make a difference. And so that's the renegade piece that you wouldn't expect 
you know, her to have that chutzpah and that fire in her belly. And then with a little bit of coaching to have the courage to request a meeting. And within six months, she was sitting at that executive table and she has made great differences in the company and she has shifted you know, their their culture to be one that really is more engaging for millennials and for the future. And between you and I, the CEO told me that he, she might be having her feet up on his desk someday. What do you advise people to do to become renegade leaders? Well, I find that a lot that anybody can become a renegade leader. However, a lot of us sit back and we wait for a permission slip in some way. We wait for somebody else to tell us that we're good enough to move forward, or we wait for us to have the resources that we need or enough knowledge to move forward. And I think like some of the names that you said, they didn't wait for any of that. They didn't have the resources. I mean, if you look in the, you know, I was just reading that five years ago, you know, Amazon, you know, was, you know, didn't really quite exist. And just to have it be an idea and moving forward. So a lot of people don't have the money or the resources. However, what they need is the courage, the courage to act upon that seedling of an idea, the courage to nurture it as their own, and the courage to move forward, despite not having what the status quo says that we need in order to succeed. Well, how do you as a coach instill that courage in someone? What do you do? Well, sometimes courage also means being vulnerable, which also means that in leadership, it means I have a big idea, but I sure as heck don't know how to make it happen. And to be vulnerable, to ask for help and assistance in launching the big idea. And oftentimes, because people are looking outside for the answer, looking outside for those resources or outside for that permission slip. What I also do is help them to look inside to know that they've got everything that they need to be resourceful and to move forward. So holding up that mirror of how I see them and all their possibility until they see it for themselves. And and I see that you... you uh also work with doing leadership guides for women in business. Is that right? Yes. What's, what's, what does that involve and how important is that? And I did recently wrote an article about this that it's not, I don't see the issue about women in business being one of a gender issue, which commonly that's how we talk about it, that we need more women in leadership or we really have to look at it as a diversity issue. I see it more as a business issue because there's many studies that will support that women in any level of leadership or woman on a board really makes a tremendous difference in the bottom line. And the reason is the traits that they can bring to the table of, you know, being more inclusive or working through collaboration or or being okay with not knowing the answers, but being able able to work through things with teamwork, those are the skills that any leader, man or woman, can bring to the table and be more effective these days. And so I see it as a business issue that women can have a great effect in business. And also because we are the majority of consumers, we know our clients, our customers better. So who to help make marketing decisions than, than, you know, a woman somewhere in a department. What I do find is that a lot of women don't, for the same reasons people don't step into the renegade leadership, don't step into their career path of what's possible for them. In Australia, we have all the top 200 companies, uh, none are run by women, none now. And I, I'd imagine a very similar situation over in your part of the world, in the US. Uh, do you see that changing? Yes. Our, as far as looking at our you know, Fortune 500, we only have like you know, 5% are run by women. 
basically like a new study just came out that said most women when they start their careers have the aspirations to go into the C-suite. However, within two years, it drastically reduces in comparison to men. And so commonly people might think, well, they're established in their career, but maybe it's at the time where they're starting to think about having a family and that off ramps them from their career. But truth be told, when you look at the statistics about that, that isn't the truth that um, what women report is as they continue to advance in their career is that, you know, they, the corporate env- environment too can also be less supportive or certainly yes there is less flexibility if you're if you um you know are sandwiched between having children and an elder generation that you're also caretaking for but mostly women off ramp from their career path because really of the environment going forward they tend in order to succeed into into higher levels you need mentors along the way and unfortunately a lot of the men at, are at the top are not spending as much time mentoring women to help them to advance to their career what what we notice in australia and i'm sure it's a very similar situation over there in the states is that a lot of women come through the corporate world go off to have children and uh, are less inclined to come back uh, back into the corporate world, and they end up running their own business. So uh, the number of female small business owners has escalated quite rapidly. Is this, I'd imagine, be a very similar situation in the states. Yes, it, yes, it is, and and that actually has been my own personal experience. In that, you know, I worked in corporate as a national account manager and in the IT world and in sales as my corporate background. Loved what I did. Was a President's Club winner every year was advancing. They were looking at me for a corporate position. But between having a um, commute that was over an hour long and then an expectation of always being having to be there, you know, at 8.30 a.m., which, you know, sometimes with the traffic, I never knew when I was going to get there. And then having to race back home for a nanny to get to her, you know, evening college class, it really just got to be very burdensome. And here I was one of the top 10% top performers in the the country in sales and loving what I did. I My last contract I brought in was an $8 million sale and involved 30 countries. So I certainly was providing some good return on the company. However, at that time, there wasn't the flexibility. If there was the flexibility that I could arrive at, you know, 930, it might have made a tremendous difference in me, in me staying. If there was the flexibility of do, working at home one day a week and, and doing proposals or what have you. And thank goodness we do have a lot of that now here in the States. So do you see uh, the time coming when more and more women will be running uh, Fortune 500 companies? I see that I see the time coming that because more women are advancing in their own companies and because a lot of those smaller companies are quickly escalating into high revenue companies, regardless of size, that that shift in business is taking, that there's that there's much more smaller businesses opening. And because at least here in the state, you know, we're not growing as much by, you know, growth within the organization or mergers and acquisitions. Instead, we're growing through collaboration and partnerships with other businesses to meet business needs. And so really, you know, if you if you look at the, at, since 1955, the number of Fortune 500 companies that existed, like 90% of them are gone. So I do even question how many Fortune 
giant companies are we going to have as they tend to either, you know, merge together or even get smaller and more diversified through outsourcing and collaboration with other companies. Indeed. And uh, you might see uh, some companies run by women taking their place. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And it will be interesting with the global expansion. Um, You know, most companies are, are aware that they have to position themselves for global business. And it will be interesting to see, like, as you said, you know, the companies are not led by women in Australia, but I believe it's Norway that, you know, requires women to be on their boards because realizing the value of of, you know, the bottom line contribution. Well, Deborah, look, it's been fantastic talking to you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Great to speak thank, with you, Gary. Thank you. Gee, she was interesting. Leona, really great. I mean, you know, knew what she was doing and really had a very good idea of the corporate so. image. Yes, she did. And uh, now, okay, Stephen Kakoulis on uh, things ain't so good as they used to be. The ASX um, last week finished at its lowest point since the global financial crisis, and uh, it was down to five thousand fourteen or something like that. And yes, yes. And it was, and it and it sunk again yesterday, of course, and uh, and it will continue to sink because those figures out of China. It's just disastrous. It brings the whole focus back onto economic policy. Look, you can't blame uh, Tony Abbott or Joe Hockey for the fall in the terms of trade, nor as you could blame Wayne Swan when he was treasurer, you know, two or three, four years ago, whenever that was. Yeah, Australia is is hostage to the global business cycle. Uh, we had some good times when the commodity prices were booming. We've now got the good times unwinding. And the question now is, what do we do about it? Do we put our hands up and say, oh, yeah, let's just give income tax cuts? Well, that's dreadful. Or do we say, okay, what reforms do we need if we're to sort of arrest this decline in living standards and get the economy onto a stronger growth path again at some stage? Well, what should the government be doing to uh, get the economy back on track and to actually withstand this sharp drop in commodity prices. One of the critical things would be to fast track some of this infrastructure expenditure. They've been talking about infrastructure, but the uh, figures on public sector investment, uh, like private sector investment for that matter, have been dismally weak. That we've had um, no real evidence of a bring forward of construction on Uh, spending on infrastructure, and at a time when the rest of the economy is weak, when the government can borrow money very cheaply because global bond yields are at these staggeringly low levels, um, they should fast track this expenditure, one, for the sake of the economy, but also really, really importantly, because it actually adds to your um, productive capacity of your economy. That, that would entail, though, uh, going and cranking up the debt, would it not? Uh, it would involve cranking up the debt, and that's the p- politics coming in the face of uh, policy. Uh, yeah, the politics from debt and deficit disasters and these other things that the coalition parties were talking about in opposition were, were wrong at the time and they're wrong today. And particularly, particularly when you've got the economy you know, in a very subdued phase, when you've got the risks of poor trade numbers, rising unemployment. It, it's not the question where you worry about debt and deficit, as we learned in other countries during the GFC. You've got to get your settings right to grow the economy. One assumes that the GDP numbers are going to continue to trundle along around about 2%. What will that do for employment? The longer that the economy grows below 3%, the more likely it is that unemployment rate keeps 
creeping up. We know that the Australian economy has got to grow by about 3% or thereabouts to get the unemployment rate down. And it's now been a couple of years since we've been anywhere near 3% GDP. So while ever the economy is muddling along, declining, you know, growing at two and a quarter, even two and a half percent, it's just not strong enough uh, to get the unemployment rate sustainably lower. So at best, you could hope for stability in the unemployment rate, about six and a half percent. At worst, we get the unemployment rate uh, getting above six and a half and heaven forbid going somewhere near um, somewhere near seven percent. Now, that's a worst case scenario, I think, at this stage, but it's one that is increasingly on the agenda. The government doesn't seem to be doing anything about it apart from uh, you've got the FTA as uh, in the horizon and I mean, uh, Labor's under a lot of pressure to back that. How important is the FTA for the Australian economy? Yeah, FTA is useful, but it's not a game changer. I think when uh, in the recent uh, parliamentary grilling of, of Treasury and the Department of Trade about you know, what's the economic benefit here, how many dollars will be added to GDP from the free trade agreement, they said, look, it's a rounding error. It's lucky to be you know, 100 or $200 million a year. Now, useful, always good to have extra uh, than having less, but it's not, the, it's not the circuit breaker for the economy. It does not mean that the potential growth rate of the Australian economy picks up. And even Trade Minister Andrew Robb put out some numbers um, earlier this week saying that the benefits to the economy are only about $4 billion over the next 15 years. So you do the maths on that. It's about $250 million a year. So, and that's in an economy that's currently about $1.65 trillion. As I said, it's useful, but it's not the sort of policy reform that's going to drive the economy back to 3% anytime soon. The other issue on the government's agenda is uh, tax reform, but uh, how important is that? Well, tax reforms are always... It's, it's like painting the Harbour Bridge. You go to one end and finish and then you've got to start again. Tax reform's always got to be on the agenda because, yeah, the economy's changing. We're moving from goods-based economy to a services-based economy and a lot of the services don't attract GST and, and issues like that. So, look, tax reform's got to be there. Where I think the problem for the government is when we've got a, a sustainable yeah, a really large budget deficit in place and growing government debt is that they're talking about giving income tax cuts to cover bracket creep. Now, bracket creep's relatively small beer at the moment, and I don't think too many people complaining <laughs> complaining about it, particularly when you're running a budget deficit. So they're actually going to be making the budget deficit wider if they give away uh, tax cuts to cover the uh, bracket creep. So it's sort of the wrong policy for the wrong time. I think as you know, the issue with low interest rates and a subdued rate of economic growth has got to be more about infrastructure spending, growing the economy. And then, of course, with infrastructure spending, you leave a legacy. You've built something that's going to be useful for the economy for years to come. What sort of infrastructure should they be building? It, most of it relates to transport and public transport. So roads, rail facilities, airports, the second Sydney airport. Great idea. Let's, let's Let's do it. You know, we're sort of dilly-dallying over the speed at which that's going to be done. It's been approved now, but let's let's just get on with the job of doing it. Uh, also, critically important, I think, is uh, one that's certainly not on this government's agenda is about energy production, you know, renewable energy. We've heard US President Obama you know, coming out very strongly about the case for renewable energy being a driving force of uh, the economy over the, over the next couple of decades. You know, we, we've gone backwards on that score. So having money spent 
encouraging renewables would be something that would not only help the economy in the short term, but actually achieves another objective, and that is an environmental um, uh, management issue. But, but that all seems to be very far off from the government's agenda. It seems to be a long way a long way from the government's agenda, unfortunately. And I guess this is the frustration that keeps coming through in a lot of the business leaders' comments about public policy. You know, we saw that reform summit just a week or so ago. You know, we can be critical of the summit for just rehashing over old ground. I think the point is that the business leaders, the business community are hungry for a policy change. They want some vibrancy in terms of how the government's looking at the economy, not for the next six months. Who cares? It doesn't matter. They want to see the structure of the economy change so that we have a more efficient, highly productive economy. And even things like labour market reform, you know, neither side of politics is touching that because the government's scared it'll be tarnished with work choices is coming back. Uh, the Labour Party's scared of unions <laughs> dominating their agenda. And while each has an element of truth to it, you know, in the meantime, the labour market is doing a, you know, doing its own thing. And as we said before, the unemployment rate, you know, at 6.3% is very high, too high. We're, we're a long way off. And uh, you can see the economy just trundling along for the time being. For the time being, while ever the global economy is sort of taken a notch lower in terms of its growth rate, we probably uh, will be trundling along a little bit longer. I suppose the good news is the lower dollar. I think we're just broken below 70 cents. So that's going to be a big benefit to the exporters. So maybe those bad trade numbers that we've seen will start to correct in the next uh, six to 12 months if the dollar stays low. That's a positive for the economy. And of course, these very low interest rates are having an impact on cash flows for consumers and businesses. We just need consumers and businesses to spend their money rather than sitting on it. So, you know, it's one of these uh, interesting dynamics where we just have, perhaps have to wait for the uh, policy effects to take to take on uh, an, an impact on the economy. Of course, the question is, does the dollar need to fall further to give more stimulus? And of course, for the Reserve Bank, do interest rates need to fall further to allow the economy to kick a little bit higher? Do you see the Reserve Bank cutting? Well, not at this stage. I think that they've got a more optimistic tone than I think the market consensus. And I think they're giving a higher weight to the stimulus effects from the very low uh, Aussie dollar. I think their recent commentary on that is saying that the dollar has fallen about far enough. It is more consistent with the uh, economic fundamentals. So I think they're on hold. But of course, of course, if we get another few months of soft economic news, the global economy takes another leg lower, then of course, a rate cut's back on the agenda. So at this stage, I think they're, they're preferring to stay on hold for as long as possible. But of course, the risks are building very, very rapidly that we do see uh, interest rate cuts coming, uh, well, perhaps before the end of the year. Stephen Kukoulos, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Well, that's about right, isn't it? Yeah, well, you know, it's going to take some time, I think. And uh, what uh, Stephen is recommending is not something that the government is going to do. He's recommending that uh, the government looks at starting off with uh, infrastructure building and the government has no plans to do that. Okay, now, Leon, the news. Well, Gary, first of all, uh, to China and the big news. China dominated the world this week, new world news this week, when their official manufacturing purchases managers index fell to 49.7 in August. That's down from 50 a month ago. The August PMI fell short of the medium 49.8 forecast from the Wall Street Journal. PMI reading above 50 indicates an expansion in manufacturing, reading below a contraction, and it wreaked havoc on share markets around the world and wiped out billions of dollars of wealth from Australia to Wall Street to Europe, everywhere, yeah. to Asia. It's a bit like us with the mining. You know, it, it, China is so big, important to the world economy. Absolutely, absolutely. And and this week was a very clear indication of what, what, what it was. Now, to Australia, 
player. And there's trouble afoot for Joe Hockey because cabinet ministers are leaking and they're saying Prime Minister Tony Abbott is being urged to dump Joe Hockey as treasurer if the Canning by-election goes badly for the Liberal Party. They're saying that an early election to be held in March 2016 should be considered at the highest levels of the Abbott government. And Social Services Minister Scott Morrison, who is widely considered to be one of the government's star performers, would likely to be elevated to the Treasury post. And Mr Hockey offered another portfolio. Now, the Liberal Party holds a seat of Canning with a margin of 11.8%, but recent polling in the seat shows it's now on a knife edge and swings to Labor of as much as 10% forecast. And Cabinet members are saying a swing against a coalition of more than 6%, which would still see the Liberal Party's candidate Andrew Hastie win the seat, would still be bad news for the Prime Minister and more than 10% would be dire. Now, a decision to dump hockey would be political risky because he's endured a difficult 15 months since handing down his first budget. He has a loyal band of supporters in the party room. But it would be welcomed, however, by some of the coalition dranks who in part blame the Treasurer for the government's current woes, including the fact that it's trailed in the polls since the May 2014 budget. He was criticised by colleagues last week but from being distracted from his day-to-day job after signing up to co-chair a parliamentary friendship group for the Australian Republican move, and he gave a speech where he flagged personal income tax, which was short on detail, and they really don't like it. Now, Prime Minister Tony Abbott says he's fully behind his Treasurer. He's dismissed suggestions that some ministers want oh, hockey, Joe Hockey done. Abbott says not a single person has raised a matter of hockey's future with him. It's all about scapegoat, isn't it? I mean, Joe hadn't done such a terrible bad job. The government has done a rotten job. You know, Abbott is lack of decision and promising something and then saying, no, it didn't exist. And That's right, yeah. It's this feeling in the nation of we're kind of rudderless. That's right, and very much. And, and businesses are really not investing at all. And, and according to the Dun & Bradstreet's latest business expectations survey, it shows they're cautiously optimistic, but there's concern about weak demand and low consumer confidence and it's weighing on their outlook for the final quarter of 2015. Now the latest business expectations survey from Dun & Bradstreet reveals solid increase in profit and employment expectations it rose from 15.9 and 11.7 points in third quarter to 2003, 23.5 and 15.5 respectively. But capital investment is in the doldrums, reflecting a disconnect between their growing confidence and a reluctance to invest or undertake. Uh, and I think what they're doing is that they're taking a wait-and-see approach. Yeah, it's hoping the sun might break and burst That's through right. the clouds. But equally, the sun's only going to get through if the economy picks up and businesses start spending and, and investing. Now, uh, we had some figures on inflation showing that consumer prices moderated from July to August. The TD Securities Melbourne Institute monthly inflation gauge, which is the unofficial measure, rose by 0.1% in August, following an increase of 0.2% in July. In the year to August, the inflation gauge increased by 1.7%. That is is much below the RBA's comfort zone for inflation, which would be 2 and 3%. And it indicates during the month there was a 4% increase in the cost of international holiday travel and accommodation, 5.5% rise in newspapers, books and stationery, and the cost of alcohol was 0.8% higher. That was offset by petrol prices falling 2.1%, domestic travel and holiday accommodation falling 2%, and prices for fruit and vegetables down 0.5%. Yeah, petrol's the big one, but I think it's on its way back. Oil, oil prices rising. Again. It is. It is again. It is again. Now, in, in our, Gary, it's a tail end of the profit season, so there are some company reports. Mark Burris's wealth management business, Yellow Brick Road, posted a full year net loss of twenty two point five five million, which is an improvement of seventy one percent over last year's loss of nearly nine million. Funds manager Australian Ethical Investment posted a twenty three percent fall in annual net profit to one point nine seven million. Beleaguered Education Provider Vocation posted a full year loss of more than three hundred. Million. Perseus Mining reported a net profit of 87.8 million in the year through to June, rebounding from a loss of 30.9 million in the previous corresponding period. And Maya 
posted a net profit after tax of um, 29.8 million. That's a 69.7% slide over the previous year's $98.5 million profit. But Gary, Meyer is now looking to raise $220 million in the market and it's planning a $600 million capital investment in the business. They're really going heavily on the omni-channel and the click and collect stuff. And so Maya will be one to watch. But worryingly though, the ABS put out figures showing Australian company profits actually fell 1.9% and companies in the finance and mining sector led the downward plunge with financial insurance companies' gross operating profits falling 38.9% and the mining industry recording a 9.9% decline. And that's the fifth time in a row the profits have fallen with the mining industry slowing down. And at the same time, Gary, August saw the local share market recording its worst performance since the height of the global financial crisis. The ASX 200 nosedived 8.6% in August, and that's the worst monthly performance since October 2008 when it fell 12.7%. Yeah, the thing about the stock market is that it's a yo-yo and that it's as volatile because everybody's scared. Yeah, investors have been spooked by what's happening in China in anticipation the US Federal Reserve is going to raise interest rates soon. Now, Australia's current account deficit blew out sharply in the second quarter, according to the ABS. The current account deficit widened out by 5.5 billion, or 41%, to 19.03 billion, which was a lot worse than expected, with analysts uh, surveyed by Blooming tipping, tipping it would come in at 15.9 billion. And net foreign debt is now close to $1 trillion. That's a nice figure, isn't it? That's right. And the killer was the exports, which went into negative territory. It went minus 6% to 4.86 billion. Numbers not good, are they? And it was also reflected in Australia's terrible GDP numbers. Economic growth slowed faster than forecast as plunging commodity prices blundered export earnings and mining companies cut back mining construction. Only a surge in government spending helped keep the economy from contracting. And according to the ABS, gross domestic product gained 0.2% from March when it gained 0.9%. And the annual growth slowed to 2%. It's, we're now growing at 2%. That's down from 2.5% in the first three months. So it's close to zero. Biggest contribution, what was propping it up, was government spending. Yeah. So in fact, the economy, sans the government, is in recession. I might add, Gary, that uh, a growth of 0.2%, Greece grew 0.8%. Hey, I wonder if we could join the European Union and get a bailout. That's right. <laughs> what an idea. Now, Deutsche Bank has slashed its outlook for the Australian share market after last month's, last Monday's 4% dive, forecasting the bourse will stay below 6,000 points well into next year. And it said it was cutting its year-end target for the ASX 200, which is the local main local stock market gauge, to 5,600 points. That's revised down from a previous forecast of 6,200 points. And also soured on the medium-term outlook, predicting the benchmark index will only hit 6,000 points by, by the end of 2016. And uh, the ASX 200 is currently fluctuated between 5,200 and hit by allegations that its business model is forcing franchises to use sweatshop labour. 7-Eleven now has announced it's setting up a panel to review staff payments and exit options for staff who want out. And the chain's executive officer, Warren Wilmot, says the panel will review, receive and process claims of underpayment and authorise repayment where appropriate. And he says any existing franchisee, Seven uh, Eleven will refund the fee that the franchisees pay and help sell in the store. Is it right that the uh, franchisees pay 57% of their gross to Seven Eleven? That's right. So, you know, How do you whole, survive? The whole business model is done so that they're um, underpaying and overworking their employees. Harvey Norman, for example, I think charges about 20% of gross and even that's rated as high. Now, Aldi 
has told suppliers is expanding with plans to open as many as 80 supermarkets across Australia next year. It's looking to open 40 new stores across the eastern seaboard, in addition to the previously announced blueprint to expand to Western Australia and South Australia with 40 stores. Now, this is the biggest rollout in Aldi's history since it opened here in 2001, and will turn Australia into Aldi's biggest market outside its base in Germany, and it's going to increase pressure on Coles, Woolworths and IGA. And uh, they're on a hiding to nothing, I think. Now, two other pieces of news. The manufacturing sector in Australia expanded for a second straight month, which is good. Uh, it shows the dollars, the lower dollars adding in and residential building activity and strong demand for food and beverages continues to benefit downstream manufacturing suppliers. The Australian Industry Group Performance of Managing Sub-Index rose 1.3 points to 51.7 in August. And three of the eight manufacturing subsectors expanded food and beverages, wood and wooden paper, and textiles, clothing, footwear, furniture, and other manufacturing. Yeah, and even cars are up too. That's It's pretty good. It's pretty good. Now, the number of building approvals increased more than expected in July as volatile apartment fingers re figures rebounded strongly in the month. The ABS data showed the number of buildings approved rose this season adjusted 42%, 4.2%, sorry, to 19,298. And forecast by analysts surveyed by Bloomberg predicted only a 3% rise. So 4.2%, that's pretty good. Yeah, that's right. So we've still got a housing boom, haven't we? That's right, which is why, Gary, the RBA held the official cash rate steady at the record low of 2% at its September board meeting following the recent global share market turmoil. And we don't know whether the RBA is going to cut rates again. You know, you sort of think you can't really cut rates. Given the large slice of um, retirees around, depending on uh, interest, it uh, might be politically difficult. That's right. And that's it for this week, Gary. Great, Leon. That's good. And uh, next week? Next week, we're talking to Sandra Jones from RMIT, and she's going to be talking about an RMIT program that actually works with businesses to help them solve problems. Yeah, and a very clear interview it is too. That's it for this week. In the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBizBiz or on Facebook. Take care, and we'll talk to you next week.